Okay, recording live. The newest episode of Marta the Minimalist podcast, exclusively for you, the members of The Minimalist Method for Prosperous Female Entrepreneurs. I love helping other people to not have to go through some of the tests and trials that I did if possible. This is where you get the first dibs of the best business strategies ever so you can grow your revenue while minimalizing your time, your efforts, and your energy. There's great coaches. There's people in this field. So yeah, you want them on your team. and welcome to the newest episode of Marta the Minimalist. We're here today to tell you about the foundations of your business and declutter out the rest so that you can set your business up for thriving years to come. And who better to tell us than my brother-in-law, Mike Nicolella and Anthony Judas with um, their attorneys at Strasburger, McKenna, Gutnick and Gefsky. And they're going to tell us two key things that I know many of you probably have been wondering whether the heck you did this correctly and worst case scenario, the fear-based mentality of, is someone going to come after you? Well, uh, Mike and Anthony here are going to make sure that you're in a good spot. Mike will first tell you guys the difference between, you know, how do you file? Should you file yourself? Should you register as an LLC, an S-Corp? What's the difference and what are the benefits behind that? And then Anthony will take us through the difference between having contractor team members, contractor pay team members that uh, own their own businesses, essentially, and operate as their own entities, essentially, rather than having um, employees that are W-2, what the difference is and what are the pros and cons between that. I know so many of you have been asking about this. And because these are such um, such um, situation-specific situations, um, we're going to invite you that rather than asking questions in the comments. If you're watching this on a platform that allows you to comment, save those questions and go ahead. And actually, I'm going to invite you to connect with Mike on LinkedIn and send him a private message on LinkedIn. And you will find him under um, Mike Michael Nicolella on LinkedIn. Is that a fair assessment, Mike? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Awesome. So before I go on and fumble over my words again, and uh, this is certainly not my area of expertise. This is why I like to hire um, experts like yourselves to help me with this stuff. But before we get into all that, Mike, can you tell us your story? What brought you to where you are today? And then Anthony, of course, I'd invite you to do the same as well. <laughs> be fantastic. So I, when I graduated from college, I worked for a tech startup and they had a really interesting idea. And I was able to be along as they raised some funds and started a form and started to build a business. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me is the role the lawyers could have in helping somebody plan a business and structure it, and plan for growth and handle relations with investors and walk down their intellectual property. And that was sort of the germ of an idea I had back then because I was an English major and, you know, I was on the creative side of that business. So I decided I wanted to study law because I, I see businesses as the creators of the world a lot of the times, the leaders who are really doing great things, and I thought that's how I can contribute. So after that, I spent about 12 years in a large firm that handled a lot of corporate law work. I did a lot of interesting stuff. 
Um, a lot of it for big Wall Street firms, learned a lot. Uh, really, you know, a lot of different thought puzzles to think through every day. But one of the things I really missed was making real personal connections with entrepreneurs and, you know, people who had a lot of skin in the game. And, you know, I enjoy doing that. So I've been doing that with Strasburger McKenna now for two years. And, and I just really enjoy being part of people's team and learning about what they're doing and seeing how I can contribute. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. What about you, Anthony? So my story is a little bit further back. I originally wanted to be an astronaut when I was a little kid. When that fell through, I decided that I should go into law. So since I was about 10 years old, I wanted to be an attorney. Um, so I went into college and law school knowing that I this is what I wanted to do. Uh, growing up, my uncle had a small business and my mom was president of a teacher's union. So I always knew that there was an employment side of my life that I, you know, I saw both sides of the coin. When I got into law school, I loved employment law. And, but unfortunately, when I got out of law school, there weren't really positions that, you know, catered to employment attorneys. Um, so I went into real estate and I worked my way through real estate for about, you know, 10 years. Um, and finally, I just got to the point where I said I wanted to follow my dream. I wanted to do, I wanted to continue following my dreams, and that was to be an employment attorney. Um, so I gave up being a, I initially gave up being a real estate attorney um, to transfer to another law firm to do employment law. And then I found Strasburg and McKenna that wanted somebody who focused on both employment and real estate. And so it was a nice, ability to be able to do two things that I ended up loving. And so coming to Strasburger has been nice because I get to do the employment law that I love. I love helping people. I, you know, everybody's trying to start a new business. One of my best friends from when I was in middle school just started a brewery uh, up the road. And it, it was very nice to be able to help him out with his dream. I mean, he was working behind the desk at a Verizon company selling phones and his dream was to create beer. And so it was nice to be able to help him out with getting that dream moving forward. And it's something that I really enjoy doing now. That's awesome. So you guys obviously have ample experience helping entrepreneurs such as your friend with the brewery. So how does one go about establishing themselves as a legal entity, Mike? What are the differences of different um, categorizations? What are the pros and cons and what should one look out for? So if you are starting a business, even if it's something that doesn't really own a lot of assets, you should organize a legal entity. Um, you know, some people, maybe you're a consultant, for example, you should still organize a legal entity. Uh, and there are several different entities. Uh, people sometimes say to me, well, I've registered a fictitious name. What do I do next? Well, a fictitious name is just that. You know, Mike Nicolella registers a fictitious name as, you know, pizza guy. And I go to people's houses and make pizza for them in their oven. I don't know. Um, that's not a legal entity. The purpose of forming a legal entity is the legal entity becomes liable in most cases for the acts of the company. So you can form a legal entity and do business with somebody. If they're unhappy and they want to sue you, well, they have to sue your company. If uh, you sign a lease, the lease should be signed by your company. Now, in reality, some landlords want a personal guarantee. That's another conversation about negotiating a lease. Um, but when you hire employees or you retain independent contractors, you want the company to be the one retaining them. 
because if the taxes are underpaid or they have an employment law related claim, they sue the company and not you. In, in most circumstances, that legal entity is going to be liable for these types of claims or obligations, and you are not. So in a worst case scenario, if you lose a lawsuit or you have some massive judgment like that, or you, know, you just decide it's not working anymore and you want to terminate a bunch of contracts, they can't go after you personally. They can't go after your retirement or your home. And there are exceptions to that limited liability protection. It, for example, if you use the company to commit fraud, but those exceptions are very narrow. So there are several types of legal entities that people can form. The most common one for a small business is a limited liability company. And that's the one I usually recommend for people. There are times when it's not an appropriate form, and there are times when you should form a corporation or a limited partnership. We can discuss those too. The feature of a limited liability company is it's a separate legal entity. You can have a lot of members. You can have different rights for different members, and we can talk about that. But you don't have a lot of the administrative overhead you have with running a corporation. You don't need to have an annual meeting. Your operating agreement can be very simple. You don't need to have directors. Uh, you don't need to keep minutes for your annual meeting. Uh, so in most cases, I recommend people form a limited liability company. You can form it with other people, and Tony and I could form a limited liability company, and he could own 90% of it, and I could own 10% of it. It's very adaptable for how somebody's putting money into the company. So he and I could be 50-50 partners, and we each put in $1,000 into this company, but he's doing most of the work, so therefore he can still get 90% of the ownership interest and 90% of the income from the company and I can be more or less a silent partner. Um, the other type of entity is a corporation. The corporation pays corporate tax on its income before paying dividends to the members of the corporation. The LLC does not pay that corporate tax. Usually there are tax advantages to the LLC. The corporation though is appropriate if you think you're going to be issuing employee stock options or you're going to be taking seed round capital from investors because it's just easier to structure the ownership in a corporation. You can have preferred stock, you can have common stock, you can you can hire directors who aren't necessarily shareholders who are influential in how you run the business. And there's certain types of entities that really they're not appropriate for an LLC, like if you're going to be an engineering firm. Um, so I would say most of the time an LLC is appropriate. There may be instances, depending on your growth strategy and how you want to capitalize when you want to form a corporation. Uh, the th there, there are limited partnerships. I don't recommend them for most people. If you're starting a professional office like a law firm, they're appropriate. Otherwise, I would go with an LLC. Um, and why would you say that? Uh, it just doesn't really confer any advantages. The taxes are more complicated to file and you spend more time drafting a limited partnership agreement than you would the operating agreement for a limited liability company. Um, okay. Um, Is there more involved or? It takes more attorney time to structure it because partnerships are a very flexible form of arrangement. They're appropriate for something like an accounting firm or a law firm where there are a lot of different ways to account for people's ownership of the firm and how they're generating revenue and how they're contributing to the taxes. Uh, and then it's appropriate to spend a lot of time drafting the partnership agreement. But 
if you form a limited liability company, you can have a very basic operating agreement. And then Pennsylvania has statutes that provide a lot of the rules for operating the LLC that are just default rules and they're good rules to go by. So you don't need an attorney to spend all this extra time and money to draft the operating agreement. So they don't need you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, they need us for other things and you know, know. <laughs> things that are more productive, like negotiating a lease or a contract. And uh, yeah. so you know, the LLC is really tailor-made for these small businesses. So you can say, no, you don't need an attorney to do too much here. Just have an attorney give you some basic advice. And here's where an attorney comes into selecting an entity. People can go to LegalZoom. Uh, I will tell you, like, our firm doesn't really cost any more than LegalZoom Zoom to do. My, my caution about not consulting an attorney is there are a lot of tax considerations and tax planning that go into forming a business. And... That is something you should speak with about speak about with an attorney and an accountant. Um, an attorney like me, I can give you basic advice on tax considerations. If you're going to have a complicated ownership structure, or you're going to have certain assets, and you know maybe a certain exit plan, I'm going to build this business for five years and get out. Those are all tax considerations that I can advise you on or refer you to an accountant on. Um, there are tax breaks specific to corporations, for example depending on your growth strategy and exit strategy. Um, now, one of the other things we could talk about is tax. Is that, would you like to go into that? It goes into- Sure, sure. Do we want to, are there other entities? I think, did we did we cover all the different types of entities that you would recommend a business structure under? Did we, did we talk about S-Corp? So S-Corp is a tax consideration. So people ask me this all the time. I want to form an S-Corp. An S-Corp is not a type of legal entity. It's kind of a misnomer. So S-Corp election is notifying the IRS that you want your company to elect S-Corp status. You form a company in a, the state where you're going to primarily do business. Uh, most people should just form a company in Pennsylvania. There could be some reasons you want to organize a Delaware company, even though you're just doing business in Pennsylvania. Again, that's primarily if you're going to be doing a lot of fundraising with investors. They like Delaware law. Although honestly, Delaware law is not really any different than Pennsylvania. They're just used to Delaware law. Uh, but if you form in Delaware, you have to go through a little more compliance hoops, a few hundred dollars more a year. I tell most people just form in Pennsylvania. So an S-Corp is telling the IRS that I'm going to pay myself a basic salary and everything else that the company takes in is going to be taxed like a dividend at a lower tax rate. Before I get to an escort, escort, let me take one step back on taxes. Okay. One of the advantages of an LLC over a, a corporation is an LLC has what's called pass-through taxation. If I have an LLC, like say I form an LLC to own a rental property, all of the income from the rental property just goes straight onto my tax return, my personal tax return on a Schedule K-1. All the expenses too, all the depreciation from the assets. It's simple accounting. There's tax advantages too because a corporation, in comparison, first pays the corporate income tax rate and then gives you income that you again pay personal income taxes on. With a corporation or an LLC, however, you can elect S-Corp status, which again is telling the IRS my company's paying me market rate salary for what I do. So let's say I have an LLC to be a consultant and yeah, LLC makes $200,000 a year. Well, market rate salary for me might be $150,000 a year. If you elect S-Corp status, you and all the members of the LLC who get income from it 
they're going to pay payroll taxes on that market rate income of like $150,000. Everything else gets taxed at a much lower tax rate as a dividend. So you can do that for a corporation or an LLC. Usually it's advantageous, but there are times when it's not appropriate. Uh, somebody who's not a U.S. citizen cannot be a member of an LLC that elects S-Corp status or a shareholder in a corporation that does so. Uh, it is. It does not allow, you know, a company that elects S-Corp status cannot have some of its equity owned by another company that's not an S-Corp. There are other reasons why it's advantageous not to elect S-Corp status, like some of the specific tax breaks for corporate. For example, if you sell, sell shares in a corporation after owning them five years, you get a huge capital gains tax break. It doesn't work for S-Corps, you don't get it. That's something you should plan ahead, you should talk to an attorney about. But okay. I think for most entrepreneurs, when you're getting started, it's appropriate to form an LLC and to elect S-Corp status. You can always revoke that S-Corp status later if you want to. Okay. So they could start as something that might be appropriate at, uh, let's say, startup time, and then maybe five years down the line, they could restructure themselves. That's correct. You can even change from being an LLC to a corporation. It's, there's a lot of flexibility here. You know, all you need to do is just show that you're not trying to cheat on your taxes, basically, or you know, right. investors. Right. The, the one hang up that I personally experienced with this is that we were set up as, I think, just an individual ownership or whatever the legal term is with that, right? And then we, down the line, restructured it something else that our accountants advised us on as being more preferable financially now that we were um, making it drastically higher revenue and the way that we were structured and the way we were running the business had changed quite a bit as well. But we did run into the hang up of then when it came time, I think actually COVID hit right uh, very soon after that. And it actually, there was an advantage and a disadvantage where um, some financiers didn't recognize us as having been in business for longer than two years because of the restructure. And they wouldn't recognize the previous financial statements and records as proof of existence. Um, whereas some financial institutions actually recognize both entities and um, therefore, it was beneficial for the many programs that were out there. So I would right. say that there's pros and cons to trying to think ahead. What would you say about that? There are, and they're specific to the type of business somebody wants to be in, really. You know, I would advise somebody differently, depending on whether they're creating a company to own real estate they're going to rent out versus if they're opening a med spa or, you know, if they're going to open a cleaning company and hire a bunch of independent contractors to be the cleaning staff, for example. Uh, and, you know, the, the few hours of time you spend with an attorney and, you know, probably an accountant is advisable too. They're going to pay off down the road in a lot of ways. Yeah. And also on the time, because I do know a, a few entrepreneurs that I've had close contact with that actually purchased courses to teach them how to, let's say that they got to the point of being a profitable entity. And now they decided that they wanted to start a foundation. They um, actually purchased courses to teach them how to set up a foundation. Um, and I know that once you get to that point, you might be at a level where um, you're in you're in growth mode and you're already in leadership mode and it might just 
if you're if you're comparing apples to oranges might be more beneficial to enlist someone like you to set that up for them what would you have to say about that I, I would be very careful about relying on a course for something like starting a foundation in particular, because states have very different laws and approaches to regulating them. Uh, Pennsylvania, for example, the Attorney General's office pays very close attention to nonprofits because they are a venue for some people to commit fraud, whether they're fraudulently using money that they raise or they're using it to duck income tax. So there are rules about in Pennsylvania, there are rules about how you organize, how you are governed, the control of the finances being transparent and accountable. If you're going to solicit donations above a certain amount, I believe $20,000 per year, you need to register to solicit and accept donations. And that's before you get to the federal level where with the IRS, you need to register as a 501c3 typically, if it's a community service group, I think it's a 501c2 in order to be tax exempt and then you need to maintain compliance and you need to file quarterly reports with pennsylvania department of revenue and there's a tax reporting process for the irs a course will just scratch the surface of this i doubt it's specific to pennsylvania law for example and it's really an area where you do need an advisor on hand who's available to pick up the phone um, because you know the nonprofit world you can do a lot of good but you know, it, it's um, it, it's interesting, right? I mean, you're holding a fundraiser. You want to make sure that you're governed properly so someone on your board isn't secretly embezzling money, right? You want to make sure that all your funds are being used effectively and they're not being squandered on expensive parties, basically, to celebrate the board members. Um, you know, these are things that you're not going to learn in a course, but they're going to get you in hot water either with your donors or the public or the attorney general's office if you're not careful. Long story short on that is that if you are hearing all of this, um, hopefully you're starting to gain some clarity, but if you have any questions or any confusion, it's the time to hire professional expert help on helping you structure your business properly. And I know that that could be the case for you, whether you are thinking of starting a business or you've been in business for 10 years in some cases, and maybe you're still using the same bank accounts as your personal expenses, and you never structured it as an individual legal entity. So should something arise, we always want to, you know, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Hope so, Should something arise, now there's no separation between you and your individual property and your business and the business property. So um, I know we ourselves in the land development um, endeavors that we are in, every single neighborhood that is developed is its own entity. Therefore, you can protect each individual neighborhood from each other. And that would probably be what you would advise to do if you own multiple businesses as well, or even multiple locations at, 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 in the same um, branding, perhaps. Now, um, again, if you have any confusion about this, or even if you don't, and you don't feel like doing it, and you're hearing all this, and you're like, I would just rather let Mike and Anthony deal with this. You guys know that you can find Mike on his LinkedIn, um, looking up Mike Nicolella. Um, and I would love to move on to Anthony and what you're talking to us about today, Anthony. Someone, let's say now has their entity set up properly. They know that they're going to be in good shape with tax season. They know that they're in good shape when it comes to being protected and they are um, 
maybe they're already at the point where they have team members, but they are paying them all as private contractors. Can you tell me about that and when maybe it's time to transition into W-2 employees <clears throat> as part of your business? Yeah, so that's exactly it. it usually what happens is uh, a company builds up, they start off with just the person who is deciding to start this business, and then they get to the point where they want to bring people on. And realistically, that's, that's the point that you should decide whether you want to have people as independent contractors or whether you're capable of having people as independent contractors versus employees. Now, Pennsylvania is a state that allows both. Um, but it, it is a very specific set of laws that governs whether somebody can be an independent contractor versus an employee. You have to have a contract with the person. There has to be an actual contract that outlines their what they're to do. It has to give them a lot of freedom. Um, there's generally very, very little oversight with independent contractors. They are to set their own schedule. They, they do things on their terms. Uh, a lot doesn't need to be provided to them, but can be provided to them. They should be capable of doing their job without the oversight of an employer or a, con a entity of sorts. And generally speaking, these are positions that have historically been those of independent nature. Um, and I know that's an enormously ambiguous term that Pennsylvania loves to throw in there to make things all the more confusing to everybody. Um, but that's generally how it is. And so it's certain things like if you are working as a retail salesperson, you realistically cannot do your job without the oversight of somebody in the store. You need to go into the store. You need to be there certain hours of the day. You need to um, mm -hmm. act in a certain way. You need to do exactly what the company tells you to do in order to sell the products that they have in that store that person probably won't be able to be called an independent contractor unless there's some sort of extenuating circumstance. Now, somebody, we were talking about real estate just now. Every time you do real estate deals, there are people that run into courthouses and search for the title of a property. They search who's owned it, if there are any liens, if there are mortgages. These people are called abstractors. Those abstractors basically operate free of anybody's oversight. They go to the courthouse on their own. They have their own machine that, or a cell phone that scans documents. They go home to their computer and they type up a report and then they send it to a title company so that they can see what's going on with the property. The vast majority of independent contractors are held out as independent contractors because they can do their job without, with very little to no oversight from somebody. So that's the big question, and that's the big ticket item in Pennsylvania. It's something that, it's a position that realistically is independent. And I know that that sounds, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but that's the best way to look at it. If somebody can't do their job without uh, you controlling them, then they're likely not going to be an independent contractor. Um, a lot of employers and a lot of entities think that if they have a contract that just calls somebody an independent contractor, that that's all that they need. They also think as long as I give this person a 1099 uh, instead of a W-2 and I have this contract, then they'll be an independent contractor. And Pennsylvania courts have specifically said that's not the case. Um, there's actually a recent study, uh, I believe back in March, that revealed that there are about 400,000 employees 
in Pennsylvania alone that are miscategorized as independent contractors. So it is a large situation that people are not really grasping or they're trying to make it work and it doesn't necessarily work. Um, so it is an issue. It is something that a lot of people like to try and do. And it's just important to know the differences because it's very possible to do an independent contractor agreement and it's, it's accepted in Pennsylvania. The benefit for being an independent contractor is you don't have to cover a lot of those overhead expenses. You don't have to participate in workers' comp. You don't have to do unemployment compensation. You don't have to provide health insurance. Um, it's, it's a big money saver for a lot of people that are starting up their businesses. But at the same time, you need to be able to give that person the freedom to do their job almost on their timeline too, which doesn't necessarily, if you're meeting deadlines or you have things that you need to get done, um, or if you need somebody to be present at specific hours to do a job, it, it's just not going to work out for you. Um, the benefit of having an employee over an independent contractor is you have the control. You tell them what they are to do and not to do. A lot of times, and what I very often advise my clients to do is create what's called an employee handbook. It, and that is verbatim what it sounds like. It is a book that tells an employee what they can or cannot do. If there's a problem, how they move forward with it, how they, how they tell the employer that there's a problem. It gives a step-by-step -step analysis and step-by-step -step, uh, outline of what their job is, how they operate, and how they move forward with it. You can control that employee to such a obviously, you know, not by. You want to control, law. control, but but you know, you can you can provide a framework of expectancy. Exactly, and you can tell them what their job title is and what how they are to do it in a way that you want you want it performed. Um, and and that is something that is very beneficial to a lot of people who are very in need of somebody that is to work on their terms so that they can create their financial goals. Um, a lot of times independent contractors are people that are utilized in more, I, I want to say more. Need be based Yeah, more companies that are a little more grounded, a little more established. Um, that way you have that flexibility where if these people are slower or faster than you want, then it's financially flexible for you for on their timeline. Um, that's something that is sometimes used. It's sometimes used in organizations that don't necessarily, that allow for people to create their own schedule and it will move forward. Or if you can have a lot of independent contractors doing something simultaneously, it makes up for the time lag. It makes up for the failure to oversee things. Um, the problem that I, that a lot of people have is they get, they want to just increase by one or two people and they want to bring them on as independent contractors. But then those people are operating on their schedule. That isn't something that you necessarily want them to do. And it creates internal problems. Um, now, of course, there would you say that there's also something to be said about the relationship with an independent contractor? Typically, they want to retain your business. They want to retain the opportunity and the income. So there certainly can be an agreement between the independent contractor and the business owner, let's say, or business leader that would also set up the framework of the expectations and the deadlines and the timelines and um and you know, there's still that that incentive for the independent contractor to perform um, because they want to retain that client. Would you say absolutely? And that's exactly what it would be. It's a client relationship. 
Right. Um, it's something that allows them to come and go as they please and do the work that is necessary. But you're right. They, as an independent contractor, they should not want to be delaying their bought their essential client, which would be the entrepreneur. Um, the other side of the coin is if they're independent contractors, they should be, they are free to go out and get other clients, as you said, like they are free to have other people that they work for. If they are solely reliant on you for income and they are working for you all of the time, um, that, and you expect them to be on your schedule, then that blurs the line between independent contractor and employee. But yes, they should want to do that. Um, and that is kind of, th those are the kind of things that you can outline in generalities within an independent contractor agreement. But as you get more and more specific, again, it starts getting more and more towards an employer uh, agreement. For instance, we have, uh, I represent some insurance agents um, and I know some insurance agents that are independent contractors and they get their leads from a, from a very specific system, but they're free to go out and get their own leads if they want, because you can't have the control to say, you have to use our leads, you have to do it this way, you have to use this system. Um, and that is something that some people struggle with. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, to give you guys an example and put my own self on the hot seat, if you're listening, we I have uh, employees and they either are hourly or some are salary and they are, you know, with me, let's say all the time. And then as we grow, because we are obviously client base and like any other business, we fluctuate on the higher side. And then there's times when there it's, it's more of a, of a harvest season. And, um, so we have a specific, uh, co private contractor or a few of them that we'll bring on when we get busier, uh, for certain projects. And then, um, we have the freedom to take a pause. So there isn't the responsibility of employing this person and providing for them. Whereas, um, as Anthony stated, someone who's um, a team member, who's an employee, they have an employee manual. And what I actually find really helpful is that when you bring on someone, have them write their, if, say it's a new position, have them write their own employee manual, have them create their own training videos, or maybe when you're training them, take training videos. So that way that manual or employee handbook is created on its own. And it's not something that's falling on your lap as a business leader. And it also allows you to review everything that's written and ensure that the um, individual understands what the position is. Um, I, I know that I've had my own employee handbook and manual. And anytime we started a new system, I assign that team member to write it out so I can read it and review it and ensure. But uh, that that things are being done properly, they're understood. And now we have a living and breathing document that adds value to the business. Would you say that that should or shouldn't be the way that somebody goes about doing that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a great way to do things. I think that having the employee employment handbook is is the most important part of it. The way that it's generated and the way that it's discussed, you know, I always advise somebody to potentially seek an attorney or seek counsel or seek somebody that has experience in drafting these so that you can ensure that what you're directing somebody to do and the way that you're directing them to do it is legal. There's also certain um, non-discrimination policies, there are uh, things like that, uh, you know, if there is a some sort of complaint system in place, how they can move forward with, you know, filing 
or reaching out if there's some sort of issue, if it's whether it's based off of the Americans with Disabilities Act, if they're trying to seek an accommodation for a disability or a religious exemption. There are all sorts of variety of things that should be an employment handbook that maybe somebody who is just begun a business doesn't necessarily know should be in, in an employment handbook. So I recommend having somebody check it out. Um, but you're right. It, it's very do? easy. It's very easy for uh, an entrepreneur or a, a company such as yourself to draft what you believe to be an employment handbook because you know your business. You know what you're doing, um, and they should know what they're coming in to do as well. Um, I always advise though to have somebody who has a legal analysis and legal experience to check it out at least, or at least give it uh, a, a quick red line. And that's something that's easy to do and make sure that it's in compliance with applicable laws because um, there are, the last thing that you want is for somebody to move forward with some sort of discrimination and, and not have the frame framework out, but that's a wonderful plan. I, I love the idea of having them write it out. I, I think that that gets everybody on the same page. And I think that open, open communication lines make for the best uh, employment atmosphere. I always find that my clients that have those open lines of communication to be the happiest and have the least amount of problems. Yeah. And, and I actually, this comes up with, um, uh, someone that I know recently shared with me that they had an employee handbook, but they had no proof that they had ever given it to any of the team members. So something occurred and there was no proof that this team member had been presented with the proper guidelines and expectations of the company. Um, and so they, you know, they were sharing that they were, um, that they were enlisting the help of a, an employment uh, law uh, company who creates proper handbooks. But is that something that you guys provide as a service where uh, a company or a business created their own manual and handbook and they have you review it for legal purposes? Absolutely. I do that. We do that quite often. Um, we help people either draft from scratch or we help them give a, give a red line and add things that we think are necessary based off the laws. And like, and to your point, it's always important to make sure that the, when the employee gets it, that they, there's a little signature line that they can uh, sign off, that they've read it, that they agree to it, that they understand everything in it. And there are certain provisions and authorizations that are contained in there. Um, to that, you know, are, are important for companies. But yes, uh, we absolutely review those. Most employment attorneys, uh, I, I don't think that there's an employment attorney out there that really doesn't review handbooks. There's something that's essentially a bread and butter piece. As much as Mike is filing LLCs, I'm I'm reviewing employment handbooks. So, and what would you say is a good time for someone to reach out to you guys? So if they're looking to have somebody talk about their employment handbook, um, it, it realistically can be whenever they're starting to bring on employees. Um, they don't really need to contemplate that any sooner, but once they decide to expand their business a little bit more, that is probably the best time to do it because that's when you're really in the phase of moving forward and you have your mindset on what you want somebody to come in and do, whether you want somebody to come in and um, you know, uh, sell clothes, or you want somebody to come in and run a cash register or come in and, uh, you know, transport uh, bakery items to different clients or help you with a catering business. There, there's 
whenever you decide what that person is going to do, that's the time to really get involved in the employment handbook. If you don't have employees, you really don't need the handbook. Right, right. Unless you want to tell your husband who's a partner what to do, right? Absolutely. And I have that <laughs> client too. <laughs> Um, so I think this is a really good conversation. Uh, the, uh, the, the best way to reach out to you guys, I guess, would be to find either of you guys on LinkedIn. Um, is there any other way that you would prefer that they reach out to you? So our website is very accessible to everybody too. So our website is smgg.com. Um, there are bio links for both myself and Michael um, that outline everything that we do. And there's uh, our phone numbers, our email addresses, and actually connections to our LinkedIn. So everything is kind of inter intertwined there. So you can okay. very easily find us that way and give us a call or shoot us an email. And I'm on I, Twitter too. What's that, Mike? I'm on Twitter too. I don't post Twitter a lot. Mike, that's right. Um, find me and I'll follow you. You can at him. Um, I don't know how Twitter works. As a social media expert, I will tell you that is not one of the platforms that I'm well versed in. So maybe I should get on just to follow you, Mike, and and tweet at you. I don't know. But um, I love to make the important point that when you started your business, typically you have a business surrounded in the industry that you are an expert. So say you are um, a an acupuncturist or a chiropractor or um, a an aesthetic spa, right? You are an expert in that field and you are seeing your patients or your clients because they come to you because you're an expert at that. And likely you spent hundreds of thousands of not more of dollars in the education in that. And then oftentimes when it comes into stepping into entrepreneur mode, I don't know why this is the case, but we have the tendency to think we can do it all ourselves. We can figure it out. We can Google it. We can watch training videos, but a business in itself is its own expertise. And if you are an expert at what you do and how you help your patients and your clients, then stick to that. You don't need to clutter up your brain with becoming an expert in the foundations of law as well. There's a reason there are law degrees and law schools, right? And there's a reason these guys had made their own investments in their education and their expertise. So if you need help, which you do, trust me, you do, you need help. We all need help. Reach out to Mike and Anthony. You know how to reach out to them. Um, Anthony has shared the domain, but you will also find it in the show notes or the descriptions wherever this episode is streamed. And now Mike, a question for you. You've had the pleasure to work with our company with photography for the most part. And now this podcast and uh, we'll be featuring you on our online media zine. What would you say your experience has been with working with media, the creative agency, who, by the way, is the sponsor of this production? <laughs> well, it's been fantastic because it's just opened my eyes. You know, it, Marta, you were alluding to how an entrepreneur can you know, work on their business rather than in their business. So you, know, you focus on your expertise, but no one to delegate. So being able to work with your company. I mean, it's one thing, I'm not a good photographer, but I've gotten a lot of perspective and ideas on how we can better get our message out and how we can do our work for people. And it helps them. How we can reach the right audience of people who benefit from working with us. And you know, that's the kind of objectivity that I need in my practice because uh, you know, sure, I can tell you a lot about corporate law, but you know, only if I can find somebody who's interested in hearing about it. I was like all ears. I was leaning in today. This is all really good stuff. And often as a 
a business mentor to emerging entrepreneurs, I am asked these questions and I am not educated enough to answer them. So I was glad to be able to bring you guys on as the experts and have this as a piece to be able to share um, and look to you guys for the answers. So thank you again so much for being here today. I know you guys have plenty of clients to get to, so I'll let you go. And for those of you watching and listening, stay tuned for the next episode of Marta the Minimalist. If you're not already subscribing on your platform for your favorite podcast listening experience, do so now. Subscribe to Marta the Minimalist and you'll be the first to know when we issue out a new episode. See you next time.